0: Try to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again!
1: How far you gone? LA. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Uh, Never mind that stuff. Take a card. Huh? I do. You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> 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 the
0: Colts Worthy Classic a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult cinema made before 1970. Your host Antonio Palacios and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult-worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Cult Worthy Classic. My name is Antonio and this is episode number 15, a very special episode as it marks the return of Nikki E. of the Here's Looking at You Film Podcast. We had some audio difficulties a couple months back when we were trying to record this episode, so we had to put it on hold, but we are back with a vengeance to talk about 1962s Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, directed by Robert Aldrich. So without further ado, let's start the show. And after nearly two months of teasing everybody, it's finally here. The reconnection between Nikki E. of Here's Looking at You film podcast and the cult-worthy classic, come together to do Whatever Happened to Baby Jane.
1: Sister, sister, also oh fair. Why is there blood all over your hair? Whatever happened to baby Jane? To seek the answer to that question, we will follow a man plotting a murder. Highly specialized work. But Robert Aldridge has considerable experience in such matters. He has a dozen successful pictures to his credit. His stars are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. The scene. An Italianate villa in a once fashionable section of Los Angeles. Its halls, once crowded with the bright, the beautiful, and the celebrated, now echo only to hectic whispers. The insistent call of a buzzer, better left unanswered. A telephone that has become an object of fear. A supper tray that will not be touched. A window barred against the world. A hammer. A mute scrawl. Crying for help. From these elements, Director Aldrich has fashioned a motion picture with a curious title. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane.
0: After a disastrous (laughs) first attempt. (laughs) Nikki, how are you?
2: Wonderful. I'm so happy to see you again. I know. And I am always have I could talk about this movie with you twelve times, so no worries. Uh, this is wonderful to be back and uh, to be back in seat with you and see you again. So thank you for having me back.
0: Well, thank you for coming back. Thank you for being so flexible with your schedule because I mean, look what happens. We we started back in October of last year, right around the same time. We mm-hmm. started gaining listeners and all of a sudden we start doing collaborations with other podcasts. And now we've actually got yep. schedules to follow. So I will always break a schedule for you, but man, like it, it took us a minute to kind of reconnect after the first episode was such a success. Then the disastrous episode where my audio <laughs> went completely bad. Now we're here like two months later, almost to the day. Like I have my notes down you know here. What? March 3rd is when I we had like, that recording.
2: <laughs> I feel like we've grown. We've matured. Um, <laughs> so much has happened in the past two months, so we've, we can look at it and talk about it with Fresh eyes again.
0: And uh, I'm not sure if he listens to this particular podcast. He listens to my main podcast, my buddy Leo J. Allen, who you'd know through Twitter as well. Great guy. Yeah. He talked me through my audio disaster almost like a counselor, almost like a therapist. I was like, someone please help me with this audio setup. I don't understand it. This guy who I just barely known for a little bit on Twitter comes through. And talks me through everything I need to do to make this not happen again. So, Leo, if you're listening, thank you. You solved all my problems. And now I get to be here with Nikki again to do it for real this time.
2: Oh, Leo, I know. You are, you know, you're my heart. And (laughs) he is like, um, like a pod guardian angel of sorts for a lot of pods so he is he helps anyone in need here as well
0: so yeah thank you leo now now maybe
2: he'll listen to this one (laughs) i'm gonna bump him twice
0: (laughs) (laughs) we did a great job on the first time doing this in my opinion you didn't get to hear it i got to edit like 30 minutes of it before my audio disappeared But I feel, like you said, we've grown, we've matured, we've watched this film, and you actually put an episode together for your show about the infamous feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. So we don't have to really cover that. We can just send people straight to your show to get all the dirt. And you got some dirt. Yes.
2: yes so there are two episodes that we covered one just for betty um covering all about eve and one just for joan crawford covering mildred pierce both wonderful films but we talk all about their beef all about the post beef all about their um unfortunate passings so if you guys want to hear about all that craziness just head over to here's looking at you film um you'll see the two uh Posters look very similar, my Canva posters, so you'll know them when you see them.
0: Yes, indeed. So whatever happened to Baby Jane? Let's just go ahead and jump into this because this is a full meal movie. This is a very hearty film to talk about. You can't just glaze over this one. So 1962, directed by Robert Aldrich. And like we talked about last time, I loved the genesis of this director, starting off with these films, with these, these femme fatales in this psycho bitty genre classic, doing this film, following it up with Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, which we can touch on at the end because there is some of the feud in that as well. So making these two psycho bitty, very feminine, powerful performance, powerful subject matter films, and then jumps into making two of the manliest films in cinema history, The Dirty Dozen and The Longest Yard. He goes from yep. these two to those two. So that's just a testament to this guy's talent as a filmmaker, but also wanting to like expand his horizons and show the world, hey, I can bring the best out of these two iconic actresses, and then I can also throw you Charles Bronson, and Burt Reynolds movies at the same time. Like, get out of here with that.
2: Exactly. It's like he's saying, like, just give me good people. I know how to work them. I'm not stuck in one genre. You just give me good people, I'll make it work. And one thing we didn't talk about last time is, you know, uh, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte
0: especially. That film and this film were some of my mom's favorite films growing up. Like, I remember these being on all the time, especially Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. And then my dad watching The Dirty Dozen all the time. It was like one of his favorite movies. So I, I never put that together that this same filmmaker made two of my parents' favorite classic films, vintage films, one manly oh, it's and masculine. Like
2: a coupling. I know. Why isn't that cute?
0: So, what was your first exposure to this film?
2: So, um, I saw it when I was young. Um, I had seen uh, Mommy Dearest first. Um, before anything. And so, because of that, I got interested in Joan Crawford and I ended up seeing this. And because of that, I was very turned off. This movie turned me off of Betty Davis until <laughs> I then saw some of Betty Davis's later movies and was like, oh, she's fabulous. But mm-hmm. <laughs> on first viewing, you would think that Joan is this like very posh, prim, like beautiful woman who's put together, and Betty is just. A wreck. So um it just it's a testament of how wonderful of an actress Betty Davis really is as well.
0: Absolutely. And it gets covered in the feud, but there is this whole idea that like Joan Crawford chased that eternal beauty through her entire career, trying to capture that that beauty and that charm of her youth. Where Betty Davis, she really just kind of hit hard in the paint of I'm gonna age and I'm not gonna age gracefully, I'm going to use my my age, my weathered face, my weathered features, and my weathered voice to my advantage and bring you some of the most terrifying characters ever put on screen. Like you had two different styles of starlet here. And this film really kind of just put that together. And, you know, everyone uses the term meta these days where something is deeper than it really seems. And this film is an early example of that where you actually have These two aging stars playing aging stars, both of them with kind of similar paths, if you think about it. And yeah, there's something very kind of deep about that. Unless you've got something to add to that, we should just jump right into the plot. Let's jump on in. The film begins in 1917, and there's something very off about this vaudeville family of baby Jane and her dad. He's kind of like this song and dance man, but the show is focused around her. There's a very creepy vibe to it where she is like hyper-sexualized as a young child, but she's got this huge fan base and this huge following and her dad kind of like plays off this. I mean, is that how you interpreted it as well?
2: Yeah, the even the moment where the the boy comes up on stage and hands her a doll... And he says, isn't this the most beautiful doll you've ever seen? And the doll looks just like Baby Jane. I mean, it's very like, this is the most beautiful girl you've ever seen. Um, And when they dance on stage, um, it feels like it should have sort of like a Daddy Warbucks kind of feeling um, when they dance. But there's something that's a little bit more intimate about it or that feels a little more intimate than it should, Um, especially when you see later on, the relationship that he has with his other daughter.
0: I mean, it feels like it should be a cabaret with someone his own age or maybe slightly younger, but instead it's his daughter who, again, is really put into this baby doll character that is just disturbing, but the fact that there is a doll that they're trying to sell in the lobby that looks just like her, I mean, yeah, that is absolutely unnerving
2: everyone can take her home it's kind of weird
0: (laughs) right and and the fact that they're selling her at a discounted rate which is like something a little bit deeper to the story showing that even at this young age you can tell through the desperation of the father in trying to sell tickets and dropping the prices of these dolls like her career is already waning and it hasn't even really kicked off which really comes back into play later on in the second and third act of this film jane has a sister And she is not part of the act. She is very much almost forgotten as well as the mother. Like the mother is pretty much there to tend to the sister. And her name is Blanche. And they just sit off in the wings and watch this show and watch the audience go mad for for baby Jane and the dad but Blanche has got something a little more I don't know I, you, I'm not gonna say sinister as of yet but you can definitely tell that there is some complications between their relationship she does not really have a sisterly love for baby Jane at this point in her
2: life yeah it's it's unfortunate because you can tell there's moments where you can tell that it's It's just, it's more of a feeling of being left out. You can see when um, the sign changes from the baby Jane sign to the, I think it's the Brooks brothers. Mm -hmm. And so clearly there's this feeling of like, well, why couldn't we be a sister team if there's a brother team here? Um, There's also the moment when she goes outside and they're having the situation outside with the ice cream and, and Blanche is just holding back because she just doesn't know what else to do. She feels weird, but ultimately th- their dad feels like she's making baby Jane look bad by not also being a bratty child in front of these people and so there's this weird complicated relationship that she has where she's just trying to be a kid who wants to be a part of this family but she feels like she can't do anything right and ultimately that would make you bitter
0: absolutely and you can kind of start seeing the plotting between a uh, uh, Blanche and Jane because, Blanche runs into the back into the theater after her dad kind of scolds her for being a good child, you know.
2: <laughs> Literally.
0: It's like, oh, now you're making me and baby Jane look bad because you're being nice all of a sudden and helping out with the situation. And How not dare complaining you?
2: for <laughs> ice cream as well. It's really crazy. <laughs> you
0: now, when she runs back in and her mother goes in there with her and she's like, listen, you know, you're sisters and one day you'll grow up and you'll learn to love each other and blanche says something along the lines of i'll never forget this believe me i'll never forget this
1: you're the lucky one blanche really you are someday it's going to be you that's getting all the attention and when that happens i i want you to try to be kinder to jane and your father than they are to you now do you know what i mean uh-huh. I hope you'll try and remember that. I won't forget. You bet I won't forget.
0: And mm-hmm. she, she,
2: she doesn't. <laughs> you, I mean, you can tell that she's she's got a little something boiling in the back of her head, but you can also tell that she understands how to play. She's learned how to play people because of this. And that definitely comes back
0: which, again, this is a film that requires multiple watches because we talked about this last time. Like, every time I watch this film, I catch something different that leads you to what the real twist is, to what the real meat of this story is. And you almost want to, like, slap yourself. Like, how did I not notice that the first time? Like, the writer and the director were showing us in the first five minutes what these characters really were and where it was going to lead them. But we really weren't paying attention because we're just, you know, experiencing this film for the first time. So then we, we jump to 1935 after that, which, you know, this film really exists in three different time periods, 1917, 1935. And then the majority of the story takes place in 1962 or modern day when this film was released. But now we go to 1935 and yes, the tables have turned because Blanche Hudson is now the hottest star in Hollywood. She is the biggest name, draws the biggest crowds, and she has the power to control her own contract. And in her contract, she has a stipulation that her sister must be employed by the studio and have films made for her. The problem is, her films are terrible. She is a drunk, very unprofessional and the studio hates her which is a complete turnaround from what we saw in the first little kind of prologue.
2: I think it's it's also a testament to Betty Davis because every time I think about it in in this film they have actual film footage from Betty Davis and Joan mm-hmm. Crawford. And so Betty basically allowed them to pull old footage of her and trash her like on screen. And uh, while like Jones films, as we'll see later are being praised. Like the whole film is about praising these, like this re-release of her films while we take this little moment to trash some of Betty's old acting. And it doesn't look bad to me. I know it's for the film, but it's also like they, they trash her like Southern accent, which Mm In that transatlantic accent mixing with a Southern accent mm-hmm. is very difficult to do, as we see in a lot of films. So that is something very easy to trash. Um, but I think it's a really interesting testament to the both of them that Betty allowed them to do that.
0: Oh, yeah, it's great. You know, you've got this director and this producer who are watching a screening of Jane Hudson's new film, and it's a disaster, and they're like, are we even going to release this? Are we even going to finish this? And we follow them like... They're almost kind of like this Greek chorus for a second as they start filling in exposition of like what's happened in the past, the success of Jane Hudson and what the future holds. And they talk about this big party happening that Blanche Hudson is is hosting. Are you going to Miss Hudson's party? No one ever misses it. Everyone big is going to be there. And as they are kind of walking through the studio lot, they pass her car, which is this beautiful Rolls Royce, majestic, only the finest you know, car for an actress to drive. And of course it's hers. And they make a little joke about that even.
2: About how she's, uh, how the only per- car that needs that, uh, sorry, it's the only person that needs a car like this is a personality as big as Blanche. So it's, it's, she has this, way of roping people in with this very um, classy, put together, demure, classic personality that does go, that juxtapositions against baby Jane's or Jane's, adult Jane at this point. Mm -hmm. Her personality that's loud and boisterous and drunk. And so even though she has makes these demands of the studio, um, makes them put Jane into the contract, They're willing to deal with it because she has such a perfect starlet personality, especially for this time in the 30s. While I think Jane just her time was the 1910s, the 1915s when she was young and that young vaudeville personality was the thing. And that just doesn't carry into adulthood the way that, you know, some people would like it to or the way she would have liked it to.
0: And there's two things that like we really don't see on film during this particular time frame. And that is, A, we only see Jane in the screening room, in the film that they're screening. We don't really see her or what her personality is, but I like to think that she has never done anything on her own. Like, her dad got her into the vaudeville act, trained her, taught her how to be this charming little star of the stage, and then Blanche kind of took daddy's role and got her into these films. So she never really had an opportunity to display her talents with her own motivation and drive, which really comes into play later on, because I didn't think about this when we were talking about this the last time. Her, the performance of her life is in the second and third act, but there's no audience. The mm-hmm. acting and the chops that she has to do to make her little plot against Blanche later on work too, requires more talent and skill than Blanche has ever portrayed on screen. Except this time there's no audience. I can't wait to talk about that. But on that same that note. That is
2: a very good point. Right?
0: Wow. Right. I've been thinking about that ever since our last conversation. But at the same time, we don't see Blanche in this in this time frame either. All we hear is what they this this little Greek chorus of this director and producer are talking about, of how she's like super opinionated, super controlling, super bossy. I mean, she's got that diva reputation back in nineteen thirty-five. That we would hear about, you know, the diva reputations of stars like you know Barbara Streisand or Diana Ross of, of the more modern days. But we don't get to see it. We don't see Blanche again until into the second act when her life has changed. And how does her life change, Nikki?
2: Before we get into the second act, after this party, unfortunately, there is a tragic accident. Uh, we don't quite get to see who is what and where but there's a car that hits a gate and a woman screams and a woman runs and then we get the opening credits, the official opening credits of whatever happened to baby Jane. So we know now that someone has ended up in an accident and when we start our next act, Blanche is now in a wheelchair and she's being taken care of by baby adult Jane.
0: And it's another 30 year time jump. We, we are just kind of led to believe that this existence of these two sisters in their former mansion has just been this for 30 years. There's been no films made. There's been no money coming in other than what the residuals and investments were that Blanche had put in. Because apparently she was very business savvy as well. So they've been living off that in this mansion for the last 30 years as Los Angeles has modernized and grown around them. And then it's funny because like when I rewatched this again after our last conversation, it kind of reminded me of the kind of Edward Scissorhands comparison where you've got this like rotting old mansion right in the middle of upper class suburbia. Like their next door neighbors in this house is just kind of like this upper middle class white couple with a real groovy daughter that's a teenager. And they're watching a Blanche Hudson marathon On the local TV and they're kind of talking about like, it's so weird that that's our neighbor and I never see her. Yeah, she's got that weird sister looking after her. I mean, like the world's developed around them and they're in like this kind of weird gothic mansion in the middle of suburbia.
2: Yeah, they talk. And when even when they first start talking about them, they talk about them like old relics right like the daughter says she has to be 105 years old by now <laughs> so, <laughs> and she lives next door so <laughs> it's like it it also it, Edward Scissorhands is a really good um comparison it also kind of gives me like Grey Gardens feels of yeah. just this like dilapidated place that just these two weird women are living in and everybody kind of just speculates on what's happening in there but they can't quite get in you know
0: and to explain the dynamic for those of those of the people out there who haven't watched this film yet, you've got these two women kind of trapped in time. Like Joan Crawford is just absolutely stunning and gorgeous, but she definitely is aged. And I think they aged her up a little bit. And if I remember correctly, she was even kind of opposed to how much they were aging her. In the film. <laughs> yeah.
2: She had a problem with her hair, I think. she, I think she said yeah. something about her hair making her look too old, as well as a couple of other things. Yeah, she did not like that. She didn't
0: like that, but she was confined. She's confined to a wheelchair, even though she doesn't go anywhere. She still does her makeup. She still dresses her best, even though her days are spent just kind of wheeling around the house, doing practically nothing. Now, on the flip side, Jane has, in my opinion kind of gone reverse in her way of aging gracefully where whatever kind of 30s Hollywood starlet she was in in that particular time frame that was covered earlier, she's reverted back to like this baby doll childish appearance. She's got this crazy baby doll curly hair, which is a wig, I'm assuming, right?
2: Yeah, those ringlets do not stay in. The ringlets (laughs) do not stay in.
0: I I don't think so. Not if you don't go to the salon all the time.
2: Yeah, and she does not do those kinds of pretty things for herself. That is definitely a wig.
0: And she has like this almost China doll makeup on. Very heavy white pancake, prominent lips, prominent eyes, and a beauty mark. That is like her calling card.
2: Oh, it's so large. (laughs) (laughs) Such a big beauty mark. And the makeup is very dry and just looks old, caked, very caked on.
0: And because this film was shot in black and white, if you've ever seen actual color photos from like the, the set pieces and the set designs, the makeup is absolutely terrifying because it had to be so loud. It had to be so prominent. Because they were shooting in black and white. It's even more unnerving when you see these color pictures of both her and Joan Crawford during production.
2: It looks absolutely ghostly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now they have my favorite character in the movie pop in and out throughout the second act. And that is their maid, Elvira. And we love her. her, Absolutely love her. Played by Mady Norman. She kind of has everything figured out. But she's also the help, so she doesn't want to be too opinionated, but she's also not afraid to call it like she sees it when she sees some bullshit. You know, for, for example, she knows that that Jane drinks too much. She knows that Jane is probably just blowing through their money, getting alcohol delivered. And she also knows that Blanche is very defensive of Jane and protective of her, even though Jane is her technical caregiver. And it kind of leads to that great character development where we're thinking that Blanche is just this angel with a heart of gold that is looking after her sister. But Elvira is a little too smart to to take that at face value, don't you think?
2: Yeah, we, we the relationship that Blanche and Elvira have, I love because um, even from the first moment that Elvira comes into the room after she comes in the house, um, when Elvira comes in, she goes, hi. And just a very short, And and then Blanche immediately goes, oh, so you've seen Jane. So (laughs) it's like Blanche immediately is like, oh, so you're upset already. She's already pissed you off. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So their relationship, because Elvira, you could tell she's very sort of protective of Blanche in a way that like those caregivers at the time, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes could be. Um, But you can also, I also kind of feel like. You know, Elvira sort of knows that Blanche is the person that's taking care of this house, that's taking care of the funds, that's taking care of everything. Jane has the ability to like, you know, use it all up, take it all away, take away her job, take away her livelihood, you Mm -hmm. know? So she wants to make sure that this household itself is maintained as well so that she can keep a job.
0: Now, do you think before we, you know, keep progressing with the story and how the character turns are, do you think that it was kind of Blanche's plan all along to keep Jane in this state of arrested development. Or do you think that's where Jane was just mentally as well with her, her alcoholism and this guilt that she carries that they don't talk about with the assumption that she is the one that uh, crippled Blanche.
2: I think that, I don't think that she intended for that to happen. I think that she hoped that Jane would just take on the role of a caregiver and would just, take care of her. I think that she kind of thought about her childhood and how she felt slighted and kind of went forward saying like, okay, well, now that I'm hurt, now that I'm injured, now she'll have to take care of me. Now Mm. we'll have to, the roles will be switched. And I think that that in itself made Jane revert back to childhood because she couldn't mentally grow up. She couldn't, yeah. like you were saying earlier, she's never had to like do anything for herself. And so now this feeling of having to do something for somebody else, the only time that she really has had to do for someone else is when she was young and she was financially taking care of the family because she was the money maker. So I think mentally, because she had to take on this caregiver role she also reverted back to childhood and that's also why a couple of times i think she talks about this is my money that's taking care of this house mm-hmm. daddy saved up my money and she doesn't quite realize that like this isn't her anymore but mentally she's back there because she feels like she's taking care of things
1: again he, um, he wrote me a letter he didn't write you any letter either there hasn't been a letter from his office yes, and- Jane, there has. oh you're a liar you're just a liar you always were Bird Handy never wrote you any letter and never called you on the phone telling you to sell the house. You called him four weeks ago and told him to sell it. I did nothing of the sort. Don't you think I know everything that goes on in this house? You've been spying on me. <laughs> what do you think? You are disgusting. After all I've done for you, you spy on me. When all I'm trying to do is help. Who are you trying to help, Blanche? What are you planning to do with me when you've sold the house? What'd you have in mind? Some nice little place where they could look after me?
0: And there also is kind of like this very strong, I I guess, Hollywood idea at the time. Almost kind of like a Norma Desmond kind of thing where... Once your career is over and once you're no longer making films and you're not important to anybody, it turns out that you never really had any friends in the industry to begin with. You were just a commodity. And when your value goes away, so do your associates. So do your friends. So does your social life. So it only stands to reason that it is just the two of them now in this world, because even though Blanche is still considered a star, There's no value to it anymore. Therefore, there are no people there to watch after her, to take care of her. She now is like everyone else, just with, you know, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, essentially.
2: I think there's one of Hollywood's many cautionary tales about what happens if you don't get married and find a man.
0: You end up in one of
2: these situations.
0: (laughs) I never really thought of it that way, probably because I'm a man. (laughs) I'm
2: glad I have you. glad I have you on this episode to point that out for sure. Yeah, these old tales. That's how they always end up. If you're a woman and you're alone, it's probably going to be pretty scary for you.
0: Yeah, that's how you end up with uh, with Norma Desmond and her chimpanzee. But that's a different movie. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> hey there, Cultworthy podcast listeners! I have an amazing new app for you. It is called Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one super app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them aloud to you in a natural human voice, unlike mine. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable all in one place. You can browse articles and topics from which you choose and start playing. Stop scrolling and start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you'd like from sports, tech, business, science, Bitcoin, even the Kardashians, it will find you the latest articles and read them to you aloud. And they have podcasts as well. Explore trending podcasts from over 80 countries, including mine, The Cult Worthy Podcast. They even have digital radio. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link available in my episode notes. That's C-U-L-T-C-A-S-T, to receive one month free premium subscription. Once again, check out Newsly, and thank you for listening to the Cult Worthy Podcast. Where things really start to go off the rails now is Jane has always been kind of going through Blanche's fan mail, either keeping it from her or reading it first and just kind of filtering what goes through. And Elvira knows this. Elvira's actually called her out on it. But one of the things that happens that slips through is that Jane finds out that Blanche is actually planning to sell the house and cash in her assets because, you know, she says she can't afford the house anymore. But also, Jane is not well, and Jane needs to be either institutionalized or just better cared for. So there's plans at play. The problem is Jane takes it very personally, as she's taken everything that's ever happened in these two sisters lives very personally and we start to see the very dark and vengeful side of jane and it happens rather quickly like we 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 are given the idea that it's been building for years but it happens very quickly with a lunch served in a silver platter
2: <laughs> the beginning of the weird gaslighting yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jane, of of course, Blanche is um, relegated to her room upstairs. She doesn't have any way to get downstairs. So Jane has to make all of her meals for her. Um, She brings up a meal one day, um, a point in time where Blanche has some birds, some pretty birds, and she takes care of these birds in her room. Jane uh, decides to clean the cage. I don't, really know if this is something that Jane regularly does or if this is the first time that she's decided to do this but she goes and takes the cage to clean it um as Elvira and Blanche are talking about um uh Jane's previous thriving career that's no more Hmm. Jane comes back in and simply says that the bird got out while she was cleaning the cage and Blanche hopes that the bird will come back because it's her bird. Um, later on,
0: and when, Elvira's um, like, you know, she did that on purpose. She
2: she <laughs> knows she did that on purpose. <laughs> Elvira reminds me so much of my mom. It's so <laughs> crazy. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, Blanche just hopes for the best, like she always does. Somehow, well, um, later on, uh, Jane brings her her meals. Um, And uh, I actually will talk about later uh, with Blanche and this buzzer, Mm. but Blanche often buzzes for her food. Jane brings her up her meal one day. Blanche goes to take the silver platter off the top of the plate. She finds a suspiciously familiar looking bird uh, just kind of fried, burned, (laughs) cooked to a crisp, just laying on top of, you know, some tomatoes and lettuce. And so she, um, doesn't she doesn't scream. She doesn't make any um crazy noises. She just recoils, covers it up, and wheels herself away. You know, hungry, I suppose, because she can't go down and get into herself any more food.
0: And so what's happened now is the fact that the only person that ever comes into the house is Elvira, and Jane has kind of convinced Elvira that she doesn't need to be seen. For the next week. So it appears that Jane's like whole plan is to starve Blanche to death by using these tactics of fear, almost like brainwashing, so that she doesn't trust that the food she's going to bring is safe to eat. I mean, she did bring her, her fried parakeet, essentially, on her first meal, <laughs> which we can talk about that for a second. I had mentioned that when I watched this with my fiance for the first time, when she when she had seen it for the first time. We had just watched Fatal Attraction, and I was like, well, you know, I, I personally believe that the bunny boiling scene is a pretty much direct ripoff of the parakeet scene from this film. So, again, this psychological thriller starting to show its, its influences in future films, especially the 80s and 90s when they were just like ripping these films off left and right. <laughs>
2: Yeah, there were grilled dogs in like every three three movies. There was always a dog you found on a grill or a cat on a fire. And I, it, I promise you it all came from this.
0: A hundred percent. So one of the things that we also need to talk about when I was talking about Jane's greatest performances, what we realize is, is that she has been able to do a mockery of Blanche's voice and... It even comes to play a little bit later at the end, but we'll get to that later. Blanche essentially has had Jane cut off from the liquor store, because she is just spending like, it sounds like hundreds of dollars a week of having just bottles of gin and scotch and bourbon all delivered. Blanche cuts her off. So what does Jane do? She calls the liquor store and mimics Blanche's voice perfectly and says, oh no, that was a mistake you can let my sister order whatever she wants. And then she does, she orders like 10 cases of booze to be delivered to the house. So just there, we are starting to see that there is a deep talent that Jane possesses, maybe even more talented than Blanche was, just never given the opportunity or ever had the motivation to actually use it to its full potential.
2: But, but on the other flip side of this, is mimicry really a talent? I mean, That's uh, because, I mean, it. on one hand, it is really good that she has learned to mimic Blanche really well as an as a skill. But also Blanche is like the only person that she has to watch. It would be really I mean, I, I it's reasonable to under, to to understand why she would know how to mimic her so well, because she doesn't she's not around anyone else. This I don't is, even think she really watches TV because she doesn't yeah. want to see that either.
0: Yeah, this is true. At the same time, though, Jane has gotten so adept to lying to everybody, and acting is lying. Mm. You know? Like, she really is a performance. We don't even know who the real Jane is, because she's under this facade of what she was when she was a child star. Like, we don't even know who she is for real, and I don't think we ever will. The The movie never lets us see it. If it does, it's for that split second at the end, which we'll get to, but Again, there's so many different layers to each of these characters in this film. And before we keep going on, let's plant one little seed into this story. And that is, when Blanche is watching her own movie marathon in her room, she is very critical of everyone's performance and the direction of the scenes and the camera movement and the lighting. She's very critical of everything going on in the film, except for her performance.
1: I married you because... I was knocked silly, and it was a refuge. I found out tonight that this boy's in trouble. Maybe alone. It blinding. I can't think of anything else. Oh, he should have held that shot longer. I told him that when we were rehearsing also when we shot it. Oh, he wouldn't listen. How are you? Wow. Still a pretty good picture.
0: She's sitting there mouthing the words of her performance. She's admiring herself. There is that real sense of vanity that we think is gone, but this is a kind of trigger to let us know that it's definitely still there. And yet she's highly critical of everything that she wasn't in control of. You know, she even says, I told the director he should have held that shot longer which doesn't sound like the Blanche that we're introduced to after she's been crippled. You know, we 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 are led to think that she is this very compassionate and, you know, just unfortunate person of circumstance with this injury. Who's the good guy? And this kind of gives us mm. a little hint that she's actually a little bit more controlling and manipulative in her inner psyche. And we just don't know how deep that's gone
2: yet. Yep, that is uh, I, it. I also, one thing that I noticed um, that I I don't know how I never noticed this before, but um, when she's watching the film and Jane comes in and turns it off, she doesn't even, Jane comes to the door and says, are you enjoying your little films? <laughs> and before Jane even moves, Blanche goes, what are you doing? I was watching that. And then Jane goes and turns it off. And she was like, I was watching that. And so there's this moment where it's like before Jane does anything, she already knows like she's about to go turn this off because she does not like this. Yep. She does not like that I'm watching myself. And like, it's, it's just interesting to just watch that short interaction because there's no moment of real, there's no moment where Blanche is like, oh, look at these films that I did. Isn't this great? It's just immediately like, Sister to sister, as soon as they mm-hmm. see each other.
0: So now that Jane has started to kind of like keep Blanche prisoner in her room, play these psychological warfare mind games on her of whether or not, um, can I eat this food? Pretty much let her know that she knows what Blanche's plan is. Like, yeah, are gonna sell the house and you're gonna put me away. Well, this was my house. Daddy's money bought this. Like, it's this back and forth of gaslighting each other. The problem is, is that Jane, not only does she have some real helpful insanity on her side. She also is mobile where Blanche is not. So now Blanche is kind of confined to her room and it gives us this time to really experience what Jane's goals are and plans are. She wants to bring back her show. She wants to bring her performance to the world. So she goes to the local news agency and places an ad for a musician, a accompanist, to help her revitalize her career. And this guy that she ends up attracting is one of the strangest characters I've ever seen in any movie. And I'm talking about Edwin Flagg, played by the fantastic Victor Buono.
2: Yes, wonderful Academy Award-nominated actor. (laughs) Just, uh, I mean, if they wanted to find a weird guy... Oh, my God. The only guy that I can think of that's weirder than him is the groundskeeper from The Bad Seed. (laughs) Weird.
0: (laughs) But what makes this guy weird other than uh leroy from the bad seed where he was kind of like a grizzly old man who's seen and done everything this guy is like a man child he's a just an overgrown boy who just happens to be talented his father was a musician never made it as an actor or as a star in hollywood and just became like a washed up personality so this guy lives with his mom they're you know english people who've kind of been stranded in Hollywood. His mom is like very supportive of like, you need to be an artist and you need to live true to your art. So go take this job before she knows who he's actually working for. And so Edwin gets dressed up in his little suit that's a little too tight. He goes to Jane's house and man, there's like just one of the most awkward scenes in any film. The introduction of these two and them kind of getting to know each other. But most importantly, Jane showing off her past to him as if he should know who she was and what her her show was which brings us to i got a letter for daddy
1: i've written a letter to daddy his address is heaven above it's wonderful to daddy his address is heaven above I've written dear daddy we miss you and wish you were with us to love instead of a stamp I put kisses the postman says Oh, gosh,
2: <laughs> they are both trying to out baby charm each other, and it's gross. It's so gross for both of them, <laughs> and that I got a letter for Daddy song. I'm wondering if Betty Davis played off of how. Um, the little girl was at the beginning of the film oh. or if they both evened, evened each other, like if they both had some kind of... Because when I watch Betty, even when she's doing her thing right here and when she's having her moment in the basement, she, the mannerisms that she has are so similar to the little girl at the beginning. It is, it is, It is... It's scary. I mean, it's creepy, but it's also really good. Even the way that she like says her words and the way she moves her mouth it's almost just like the little girl at the beginning it's crazy yeah
0: we didn't talk about that last time that's fascinating i never thought of that it almost reminds me of when uh tom hanks didn't really have a grasp on what forrest gump should be until he met the boy that played young forrest and he kind of like developed the character based off of that that is off the boy right that's fascinating i i want to go look into that right now because. Essentially what this scene is, is you've got Edwin playing the sheet music on the piano. And Betty Davis is in her baby doll outfit. She's got these little kind of spotlights in this room full of mirrors, almost like her little rehearsal hall. And she's performing this song the same way she would have when she was baby Jane. But she is giving a full on performance. She's not just she's not just blocking it or faking it. She's going 100% full out, which it's a brilliant performance from Victor Buono, how unnerved he really is as he's playing this creepy little song and like he looks at her very oddly, but then when she sees his face in the mirror, he smiles as if she's doing a fantastic job. I mean, he's the guy's there to get a buck, right? He's there to get the job. But yeah, just the tension in that scene, there's no horror in that scene. All the uneasiness is just based off of the performances and this creepy song.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's great watching him, watching her sort of try to channel her daddy through him. (laughs) Daddy and him, this like man child, sort of not realizing that he also gives off these weird vibes, Mm -hmm. but he's just happened to meet his weird match in this this woman and watching him sort of awkwardly look at this woman. But we're also sort of awkwardly looking at him as well. Strange scene. But one of the one of the best scenes in this film.
0: And one of the things I love about that scene is like we are so involved in this scene and what's going on between the two of them that we forget for like that five, six minutes that Blanche is starving to death upstairs. Upstairs.
2: There's someone dying in the house and she's downstairs singing about sending a letter to her dead daddy.
0: Which Betty Davis plays this off so well on this next part because we still we have an idea of what she's trying to do to Blanche. But it really gets solidified in this scene when he starts asking her for money and when they can start. And she knows that she can't really do anything until Blanche is dead financially or really just to take off on her own. So you actually see her calculate in her mind how many days is it going to take for Blanche to starve to death. And she's like, "I think we can start by the end of the week, like 5 days." So she's got it calculated in her head like that bitch should be dead in 5 days. Like it's all set, you know, for for this plan of hers, which is so insane, but to her it seems not only a good idea. But it's justified it's that sociopathic idea of like i'm not wrong she's wrong she's the one that wronged me so she should Mm -hmm. die in her bedroom starving to death
2: was there a reason that she couldn't just leave i mean other than blanche being there
0: i think the main reason is financial all Mm. of the house funds all the money for the house and everything goes through blanche blanche has to write her checks or give her cash to run and get the groceries and you can tell that she's already started like learning how to forge Blanche's signature. Blanche finds those those practice signatures in the drawer when she's trying to, kind of like you know get around the place while while Jane is out of the house. Cough, cough. Right. Um, Annie Wilkes misery. Hello, <laughs> you know. It's like we've seen this oh, again. Those legs, <laughs> right? But like,
2: yeah, but that's what I was because I started thinking about that. Like, if she she'd already learned how to forge the checks. Blanche can't leave the room, so it's not like she can really follow her. So I, I wonder like, what, what would have been the difference between leaving then and just pretending that Blanche was dead already.
0: Well, I like, also think that she's never done anything on her own and there's probably some fear there if she was to, let's say, have a career, which in her mind she will once Edwin learns her songs and she can start performing, she has it in her mind that she can start performing in Las Vegas and cruise ships and all these things like that. I think it's that idea of her own self-security of like, if I got a job and I'm self-sufficient, then I've got
2: no reason to stay here. I, I think it's yeah. a little bit of both of that. We'll talk. We'll talk a little later because <laughs> that will come. I think that what she just said is really interesting. We'll talk about it
0: later. We'll talk about it later. So yeah. <laughs> now, now we're kind of getting the nitty gritty though, because like it's that great, leap into a third act that I love so much where the stakes are at their highest because she has kind of already gone all in on starving Blanche to death. The fly in the ointment is Elvira, who returns to the house. Jane pretty much tells her, like, no, you're fired. We don't need you anymore. Here's the, here's the rest of your pay. Get out of here. We don't need you anymore. But of course, Elvira is a little too smart for that, and I believe she still has the keys to the house. Is that why she returns?
2: Yeah, she said she would come back with the keys.
0: She'd come back with the keys. And so when she sees Jane leave, I believe she's at the bus stop, she decides to go back in, probably just to return the key, but also probably say goodbye to Blanche. Like, okay, well, if I'm fired, I want to say goodbye to my friend Blanche. So how she discovers Blanche is she's calling around. She sees that the buzzer's been torn out. The house is in disarray. She goes upstairs and she finds Blanche tied to her bed, with her hands like wrapped around the little pull up bar for people who are like, you know, paraplegics to get out of bed with a gag in her mouth.
2: I, I think the the I think she was also very aware that like like we talked about before she was still going to have a job with Blanche. Right. And like this random firing that Jane did is goes completely against the plan that Blanche had for her to live with her and take exactly. care of her. Um, so I think, you know, that also the, the hey, what, I'm supposed to have a job. <laughs> <Like Right>. that, <laughs> that probably was a good reason for her to go in there too and figure out what was going on.
0: And of course, bad timing because Jane returns home and she knows that Elvira's upstairs because the neighbor's like, oh, we want to uh, see if your your maid wants to work for us. She's like, well, I fired her. She's gone. Oh, no, we just saw her go in the house. What? And then it all kind of goes downhill from there. Jane commits, at least from what we know, we don't know what's happened in the 30 years in between, Jane commits her first real official murder, and she murders Elvira.
2: I think as much as I those the, that neighbor aggravates a lot of things in jane that i i don't know because i think part of the reason that jane got sort of irritated right in the beginning was because that neighbor came by to bring her flowers Mm -hmm. and then there's the situation that comes up later on with the letter it's like the neighbor like as as much as she thinks she's trying to help because she's trying to go through one sister to get through to the other and trying to like establish a relationship there. She's kind of ruining things repeatedly.
0: Yes. I mean, she's not intentionally, but you know, it also, (laughs) it it also kind of has this idea where maybe Jane just despises any women who are close to her age. Even if they don't have success, they look happy. They look like they're taken care of. They look like they have. Because I mean,
2: For, from what we know, um, the neighbor says that Blanche is probably about her age. Mm-hmm. and I think that Jane is younger than Blanche,
0: right? Yeah, she like by two or three years, I would guess.
2: Yeah, so that means that Jane is probably younger than that woman as well. Yeah, and she looks much older.
0: <laughs> yeah, she does. And, and so now we've hit that point in the film where like there are just too many things in play to ever really go back to normal Elvira's dead Jane has to do something with the body. And then our boy Edwin, you know, he, he feels like he has a job, but he also accepted a dinner invitation from Jane. So there's like this weird kind of romantic angle that at first you see her throwing it at him. And at first he feels like a little put off by it. And then he goes home and he gets ready for this dinner. And once his mom realizes who he's going to dinner with, she kind of tells him the story of what the Hollywood legend is. And the Hollywood legend is, you haven't heard? Blanche Hudson was paralyzed by her sister because her sister was drunk and crashed the car into her sister, and now she's paralyzed. And then she ran away, and they found her three days later in a drunken stupor, not knowing what happened. This is one of the things I think is going on with Edwin, is I think that Edwin... Is So desperate to become his own man, but he has this weird kind of romantic Oedipus complex with his mom in which now he's kind of exchanging for this new Oedipus motherly complex with Jane, which is even more disturbing because she is an older woman pretending she's a baby
2: yeah it's a uh, part I mean he obviously has a, a weird relationship with his mom and I think the story with his mom and um co- explaining what happened with Jane and Blanche um, part of that also may be just that feeling of like oh well like I can move away from my mother's money and right. just grab onto this lady's money and just kind of live on that until, you know, whatever. And whatever I have to do to put up with that, it's better than living with my mom.
0: Yeah, but I so, mean, she feeds um, him tea and cookies and takes him to dinner. Yeah. Like, there's a there's a lot more going on in that. At least that's the way I look at it. And again, this is 1962. Oh, yeah. This is two years after Psycho. So it isn't really a surprise to see, like, these weird kind of, like, Mommy complexes in older men with emotional problems in films now. Like Psycho kind of broke the mold for that. Yeah, Edwin's not going to go out and stab anybody. And quite, in fact, it's quite the opposite. He goes to Jane's house and is pissed off because he got stood up because she's out burying the body of Elvira or dumping her on the side of the highway. And he gets so upset by the fact that he got stood up by an old lady that he goes out and he gets just a blind ass drunk. Meanwhile, Jane comes home. Blanche is still up in the room. And then the cops bring Edwin to Jane's house because he's drunk. And he told them, this is where I was going. So she lets him (laughs) in.
2: He sits down in the little kitchen area. And she brings him the doll. Such a weird moment. Like of all the things that you could bring this man right now. A drunk man. And you bring him your childhood doll. That looks to... just
0: like you when you were a kid.
2: <laughs> yeah, and that, I think it's it's weird because it feels like her weird way of trying to seduce him. Exactly. But she know how
0: that's the way I took it <laughs> as well. It'd be like a child on the playground, like a girl, like punching a kid in the arm, saying "I like you," or here. Take my doll that looks like me.
2: Yeah, here's my doll. Now it's your baby. Yeah. Like that kind of feeling of like, my baby is now your baby. Here, now we're married.
0: He is kind of fooling around with his doll. He puts it in the wheelchair and rolls it around the kitchen. Really disturbing. And then they hear a crash from upstairs. And so since he's drunk, he's just like, well, what was that? And he can tell that Jane's trying to keep him from going upstairs, which He's already kind of like in this heightened sense from like when he had the argument with his mom, like, don't tell me no. Now he's doing it to her. It's like, don't tell me I can't go upstairs. Runs upstairs, busts through the door and sees Blanche tied up and dying. Now he's obviously a much bigger man than Jane so she can't pull the Elvira trick on him and he runs out. Jane now has to figure out what to do. We talked about this last time. We don't see what Jane does around the house quite a bit whenever like we're focused on Blanche and I have the theory that Jane's downstairs doing chin ups because she's strong. <laughs> she was able to move Elvira in and out of the trunk and dump her out on the side of the road. And now she is literally like a sack of potatoes dragging Blanche from the upstairs down to the car. Like Betty Davis in that little baby down outfit. She's got like some like Hulk Hogan strength going on here.
2: Yeah, and you know, Betty Davis had back problems at that time.
0: I did not know that.
2: So it's even crazier. Yeah, Betty, one of the, sorry guys, but one of the small parts of the feud, they said that Betty Davis had back problems and um they say Joan Crawford put rocks in her pockets oh my during god that scene to make so herself that she heavier would be heavier her body and she also <laughs> deadweighted her body so that she would feel like a dead weight so it was like horrible for betty
0: <sighs> go go back and listen to those episodes everyone it just adds to the flavor of this film <laughs> so yeah there there really aren't any more options left so what does jane do she takes blanche to the last place that she remembers being happy, and that's the beach. (laughs) Meanwhile, every cop in Los Angeles is looking for these two.
2: (laughs) And this woman is the least, most recognizable woman you'll ever see. She, unfortunately, she does think that everybody knows her. Yeah. (laughs) um, Which is not true, but also she has a very recognizable face with the makeup and her weird mannerisms so if she was a little more you know able to blend in more regular more whatever she probably could have gotten away with it but unfortunately that just was not gonna happen
0: i mean she's in her nightgown she's like in her little nighty, and then blanche is still like in her evening dress and they are just on the beach in the sun soaking wet dirty just being exposed to the elements meanwhile
2: blanche is dying she's dying
0: <laughs> And meanwhile, 20 feet away, there's just hundreds of people just playing on the beach, (laughs) you know? Just another day at the beach with this (laughs) dying lady movie star on the beach and this baby doll lady. Which brings us to the ultimate twist, and I've already announced spoilers in the introduction to this episode. This is one of the best twists in any film. This is like M. Night Shyamalan-style twist where you feel betrayed by the film, but also... You're you're almost grateful that you were betrayed. You're like you really pulled one over on me.
2: It's a feeling of like oh, I gotta go back and watch it again now. Dang.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah.
2: So the the big twist that we find out while Blanche is uh, laying on the beach and I guess giving her final confessions as she knows she's about to die, um, Jane, um, kind of mentions her her feelings and blanche tells her that there was nothing for her to ever feel guilty about all of this time she knows that she's been struggling with guilt but at the beginning when we see that grand car accident um it was not jane driving the car but it was in fact blanche jane went out to open the gate and blanche in a um and a, a fit of anger because of how Jane was acting and insulting her at this party decided that she was going to hit her with the car. And unfortunately, um, or fortunately, I suppose, Jane, <laughs> uh, she did not hit her. No. She hit the gate. Um, and Jane just kind of like freaked out and ran away like a dog in the, into the woods for a couple of days. Because she was drunk. And Blanche, of course, ended up as she is. And
0: one of the main Jane reasons did. why she decided to do that was because Jane was making fun of her at this party and mocking her voice, which apparently Blanche didn't like. So it shows that Jane was able to do this mockery even way back then and use it at parties to kind of like make her sister look the fool. So yeah, it just goes back and it plays so all those little shadows of, like you said, gaslighting and manipulation and controlling that Blanche really was, let, not, let's let's not say the bad guy, let's just say that she was the master of her own fate, but we didn't really know that until the end. And yep. the look that Betty Davis gives Blanche after she hears this is probably my favorite performance of this film. Just that moment when she is processing all these emotions of, what she had just heard and all these years of thinking that she was the one responsible for her sister being injured when really she wasn't. And she says the best line. She says...
1: You all this time we could have been friends. You were frightened and ran away i managed to crawl out of the car up to the gates when they found me they assumed it was your fault you you were so drunk and confused you you didn't know any better you mean
0: all this time you we coming. could have been friends <laughs>
2: mad like that is like the the like she's not upset she doesn't freak out it's just like this very five year old moment of like we could have been playing on the playground this whole time
0: she's so detached from human emotion that like she doesn't even take this moment to cry or say I love you or hug you she was just like oh all this time we could have been friends and now you're dying on a beach so what are we gonna do I'm going to go get us some ice cream. <laughs> ice
2: cream. Of all the let's have our childhood moment. Let the, the the thing that we were arguing about at the beginning of the movie as 10-year-old children
0: comes full circle. Oh, let's do that now. Yeah, it comes full circle. Yep. So she goes to get her ice cream, she doesn't have any money. <laughs> she just walks away with it <laughs> and lucky for for Blanche, the cops recognize the car on the side of the road. And they realize that uh, Jane has just got her ice cream cones and is wandered down to the beach. And she starts doing her little twirl. People are looking at her, not for the reason why she thinks they are. She's like, Oh, they recognize me. I'm going to do my performance and I'm going to do this little dance and perform. They're just like, who is this lady in her nightgown with this crazy baby doll makeup <laughs> and this hair holding ice creams while her sister is dying on the beach. But it doesn't matter. She's a star at this moment. She's got the attention for the first time in like 60 years. She's got the attention again. And we pull away and we fade out. One of the best movies ever made. Come on.
2: Really? It's so good. It's so good. And I, the, the thing that I want to bring up now that we are done and we have revealed everything, the buzzer. Okay. Every time I watch this movie, the the whole movie blanche is being this very like you know she she seems to to elvira and to all of these other people on the outside she seems to be this well put together sort of like calm person but every time she buzzes that buzzer she buzzes it like like it's the last thing she has on earth for her to talk to elvira blanche talks to elvira about how jane's not well in the head she's not okay You know, she needs some kind of other help other than her. But that buzzer, the way she buzzes that buzzer, like she does not care about that girl at all. It's Mm. like, it's almost like it's the only thing that the, like the way that when sisters like poke each other mm. or when sisters will like pinch each other and stuff mm-hmm. like that and like mess with each other. Well, Jane has the ability to do that to Blanche the whole time. Like she could just do all this like sisterly stuff to her. And the only thing that Blanche has is this
0: is this, this buzzer. buzzer. Yeah.
2: And so that's her like, that's her poking back at Jane this whole time. And oh, it's, it, the more that I watch it, I watched it again before we did this again. And yeah. that buzzer, I was like, ah, oh, I, would, I would probably take that buzzer off the wall too.
0: Yeah, unbelievable. Like this movie just has so many layers that you can just pick apart. And that's just so many talented people all brought together to make this work. The writer, Robert Aldrich, whoever was doing the set design, the pieces. I mean, that house, it's a finite space in suburbia, right? You know, we, we see what appears to be a decent sized house on the outside. But once you're inside, it seems never ending. Like this chasm of room into room into room with this really just steep staircase that goes upstairs to who knows how many bedrooms. That's part of like the tension building of
2: this house. The house is almost its own character. It's the you see the vastness of this house, but you can also see how dis, how disgusting and dilapidated it's become right like from the beginning. Um, The first scenes that you see Jane um, trying to make food for Blanche and her banging pots around and all the everything that's around the house. It's a sort of a wonder, like, what what does Elvira do? (laughs) When I looked at the kitchen, I was like, I mean, what what does she do if the kitchen looks this bad? Like, is she only cleaning the room and then going home?
0: Well, I mean, she comes (laughs) She comes only once a week so maybe it speaks to Jane's character of, of like why Elvira hates her but it's like I had this place spotless 5 days ago and you've destroyed it already what
2: is wrong comes with back you and it's a mess
0: yeah right? yeah I mean again like you can pick this apart you can peel this like a, like an artichoke over and over again you'll find new layers every single time I've now watched it 3 times this year once with my fiance when I decided to do it with you the first time, then again, when we did the last episode and then again for, for this, this redo of this episode. Mm-hmm. And each time I keep finding stuff like very the, few films. My favorite do that thing today.
2: that I found, my favorite thing that I found this time that I did, I, I don't know how I missed it before, but when um Jane, the first scene when Jane is making food for Blanche mm-hmm. and Blanche, uh, hits the buzzer, and she says something like, um, I'll be the- there in a second. And she goes, you bitch. But the bitch is drowned out by the buzzer. Like the, like you can yeah. see her mouth say the word bitch, <laughs> but the buzzer co- covers it. It's the, it's one of the funniest things and I've never saw it before.
0: <laughs> amazing, amazing. So we can talk a little bit about the influence about this before we wrap it up. I mean, there was a remake back in 1991 where the Redgrave sisters played Jane and, and Blanche. I remember seeing it with my mom on TV, but I haven't reviewed it since. Have you watched that one at all?
2: Um, I have not seen that one. I, I... I just remember
0: it feeling very TV movie-ish. Like It doesn't have mm. the production value or the quality. Of course, Lynn and Vanessa Redgrave are amazing actresses, and they bring a lot of, of power to that film. But again, it's a TV movie. There's only so much you can do with it. And then it was not as much remade, but almost like had an homage film about it back in 2010, played by Transgender Folk, which I haven't watched that one. I couldn't find it, but it definitely is interesting to me. If I ever see it, I'll definitely jump on and and see that. And then most notably would be the miniseries from a few years ago with Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange playing Joan Crawford and, and Betty Davis called Feud, which is kind of like covering the story that your recent episodes covered.
2: Yeah, uh, I, it, it kind of spans the gambit and takes us up to Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which is kind of their penultimate meeting that we always wanted mm-hmm. from the two of them. Um, which, which we
0: is, almost uh, got a second one.
2: We almost did. Yes, yes, I was just about to say we almost got the like the sort of the sequel. But unfortunately, what happened afterwards with the award season, just kind of like it was already a futile situation. And what happened afterwards with the awards and things, it just it wasn't going to happen again.
0: (laughs) So just two years later, Robert Aldrich was going to direct Joan Crawford and Betty Davis in a film called Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, which is an amazing film a few of the notable things about that film is that Victor Buono in that one plays Betty Davis's dad (laughs) dad in some like Colonel Sanders looking makeup. I mean, he's still good, but I was like, Oh, that's, that's Edwin playing her dad. Now, two years later, that's interesting. We get a very early appearance from Bruce Dern as the, the Bo who gets his head and hands chopped off. And then Mm. the Joan Crawford part was uh, supposed to be the cousin of Betty Davis's Charlotte, who has kind of become like this spinster with some mental problems due to a tragedy. And like you said, because of the feud and the award season stuff, which go back and listen to Nikki's episode on that, ended up being Mm -hmm. played by Olivia de Havilland in a very rare turn as a villain. And she is just fantastic in that role. I liked her better than I think I would have liked Joan Crawford, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I... Um, really like Olivia De Havilland in a lot of things that she's in. Um, and I think her Joan is just a little bit too. Um, she's sort of uh, at that point she had become one note. Yes. To me. Um, had she Joan was playing Joan, um, but in just different forms. Um, whereas Olivia and Betty were still acting and were acting very well, so I think yes. they played off of each other very well in that film.
0: And, and that character that Olivia de Havilland plays is supposed to be like kind of sweet and innocent to the townsfolk, but devious to Charlotte. I feel if it was Joan Crawford in that role, it wouldn't be as convincing with the sweet. I mean, this was Melanie from Gone with the Wind, for God's sake. You don't get much sweeter than yes. that. So, yeah, I think I think they did much better with the casting on that one.
2: Oh, I was going to say one of the things that they say said about Joan a lot was that it was hard to film her emotions changing on screen Mm -hmm. they said like if if she had to portray her emotions changing they would have to switch the camera away and switch it back so that she could contort her face the way it needed to move and um i think they said it got worse as time goes on so i would i don't think i would have wanted to see her in that role
0: no (laughs) (laughs) well normally i ask uh guests on the show what would they would pick for a double feature but I consider this film like a full meal. Like if I was to watch this film, I wouldn't want to watch anything after it. I'd want to sit in the emotions that it made me feel and just contemplate all the different layers that we've picked apart, just the surface of most of them tonight. You know, I don't need another film to make me even like forget anything about this movie. So this is definitely-
2: Or watch it again. Or watch it again. If you you watched it the first time, and, and saw the ending, you could definitely go back and watch it from completely different eyes and you would notice um, so much stuff that you didn't notice the first time.
0: 100%. I am so glad that we finally were able to talk about this movie after promising not only our listeners, but each other, that we were going to get this thing <laughs> done right for the last two months. And here we are doing it. I mean, episode 15, and you were episode number one. Isn't that just amazing how fast time flies?
2: You are doing so great. And I'm so glad that you, even after how horribly I I was on the last episode, that you wanted to have (laughs) me back on. Oh, stop, oh, stop. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, But I really appreciate um, getting to do this with you again. Um, I I could do a million uh, episodes of this podcast with you. Um, so um, I I would say that I feel like you're the Betty Davis to my Joan <gasps> Crawford, but I think we like each other a little bit more than that.
0: Yeah. I think um, so, <laughs> Maybe I'm the Olivia de Havilland to your Betty Davis.
2: <laughs> yes, that's it. That's perfect. I like that. I, 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 I you. Could, you could be the I. You could be the Vivian Lee to my Olivia de Havilland. We there could go, go straight to go back to, to Gone with the Wind.
0: So speaking of which, what do you got coming up on your show? Are you just gonna really kind of finished tackling Gone with the Wind or is there anything you want to give us like a sneak preview of?
2: Yeah, so uh, we'll be doing um, Gone, uh, I either one or two more parts of Gone with the Wind. Um, if you guys don't know, I did part one um, before the intermission and I also did release um, an episode for Star Wars Day, May the Fourth be with you. Um, so both of those are out um and uh we'll be doing the next two one or two will be gone with the wind and then we will do a couple of episodes probably more than one dedicated to uh Marilyn Monroe.
1: Oh nice. So we'll
2: be doing some Marilyn films uh pretty soon. So you guys watch out for that cuz we you know we love her.
0: Absolutely. And if you didn't get excited for Nikki's show from the very first episode The Bad Seed which is still the number one episode of all time on this podcast, go back and check out her Casablanca episode and her Dangerous Liaisons episode. Those are my two favorites, personally. The Casablanca episode made me cry. It really did. Like, I was in the car crying because you were so passionate about how you were exposed to that film, but also how in touch with the characters you were. Like, when you talked about Sam sitting at the bar getting drunk after Elsa pops back into his life and just the emotions on his face. I hadn't watched that film in like maybe two or three years, but just your describing it, put that picture back in my head. Yeah, just the pain in his face. I was like, oh my God, I know what she's talking about. And I cried in the car.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh. I, You know what? That's what it is. You are Rick and I am Sam. That's it. Oh, <laughs> It's me and you. snap.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Anyway, I can't, I can't, I'm going to cry. I just love that movie so much. (laughs) Well, Nikki, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Once again, her podcast is Here's Looking at You, Film Podcast, on all platforms. Is that correct?
2: On all platforms. And if you guys haven't listened to um, I mean, we love this podcast as well, but y'all make sure y'all listen to the Worthy, the main podcast as well, too. Um, the, this has had some great episodes, but there was a great series on like tunes last month that I was obsessed with. So please go back and watch that and go listen to those because um, I I'm a toon girl and all of those episodes are amazing.
0: Thank you so much. Well, once again, my name is Antonio. This was a Cult Worthy Classic. You can follow me on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram and Facebook. Also check out my website, thecultworthy.com where you can find links to all my episodes and links to all of my favorite indie podcasters and at the top of that list is Miss Nikki E. So check out the Cult Worthy Partners page on my website and I will see you all next week.